I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by the new Colour Revolution exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which looks at the way scientific breakthroughs in the Victorian period enabled dramatic changes in the use of colour in fashion, painting and other objects. You can hear one of the exhibition's curators, Charlotte Riberon, a professor of 19th century British literature at the Sorbonne, explaining more about the exhibition and some of the objects and ideas it explores in a special mini-episode in our podcast feed. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Later in this episode, we'll have the first in a series of short conversations with some of our writers about their favourite pieces by other writers from the LRB archive. This week, I'll be talking to Rosemary Hill. But before that, I'm joined by John Lanchester, whose many books include Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay on the 2008 Financial Crisis, How to Speak Money, and most recently, a short story collection, Reality and Other Stories. He has a piece in the last issue of the paper on the disgraced cryptocurrency billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried. It's a review of two books, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon by Michael Lewis and Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall by Zeke Fox. Hello, John, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. So last time we spoke on this podcast, a couple of months ago, we were talking about unreliable numbers, and that's sort of our subject again today. Since your piece went to press, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was on trial in New York on several counts of fraud, has been found guilty and is awaiting sentencing. In theory, he could face a sentence of more than 100 years. The jury reached their verdict in a matter of hours. Presumably, you weren't surprised by the guilty verdict. I wasn't. I was surprised by the speed, and I noticed that lots of newsrooms were, because um, several of the people you'd have been expected to cover it you know immediately with pieces didn't didn't have them ready and i think that's you know and there's a rule of thumb that um i think everyone was relying on which is that if you give the jury an opportunity to have the weekend in the hotel with everything paid for they'll take it so when they went out on thursday afternoon i think everyone was assuming okay right it'll be monday at the earliest and uh, blow me down five hours which is um you know astonishing astonishingly concise uh decision-making process for about, uh, was it six weeks the trial yeah something like that yeah yeah guilty on all counts so not surprised by the verdict but um it, there was still something pretty brutal about the kind of clarity of it and the speed of it so and not so long ago sbf as he's sometimes known i don't know if you want to call him that or bankman fried or, or both um, um I'm, I'm fine with bankman fried sbf is sort of it's just really tiring typing out Bankman Freed if you're writing about him. Uh, but somehow it seems like, you know, um, that that d- tiny extra little bit of effort uh, when it comes to saying it, it's not so bad. Okay. So not so long ago, Bankman Freed was sharing a stage with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and being hailed by Forbes as the richest person in the world under 30. 
now he's looking at spending the rest of his life possibly in jail. So if we talk about his rapid rise first, before we get to his even faster fall, how did he end up on stage with Clinton and Blair in the Bahamas? Yeah, a conference they sponsored. I mean, I think the odd thing for me, that was the first time I'd ever, I think I might have seen his name and not knew, known what it meant. And then I saw a photo, I think it was in the FT, of the three of them on stage and Bankman Fried as usual wearing the shorts and the t-shirt and, and his mad hair. And I remember thinking, what? You know, it just looked so unlikely. And you, we were talking about this earlier and you're saying that you um, he had the look of having wandered on there by mistake. Actually, I have to admit, I had the opposite feeling that Blair and Clinton had wandered on by mistake. That there he was, you know, Bankman Fried in the Bahamas, fine. But these other two blokes, because there was just something about the, their look, you know, they didn't clearly didn't know. You know, they had that look of someone who was going to go back and give a giant bollocking to whoever was in control of their diary. And it's quite odd because I remember, you know, there is that, um, they call the 40 under 40 to prison pipeline that all the people who've been in Forbes as 40 entrepreneurs under 40, because um, they, her and Elizabeth, him and Elizabeth Holmes have both been on the cover of Forbes. <laughs> as, you know, future of next big thing. And Enron executives were multiply on the cover of Forbes. For yeah, it was winning, Nick, winning Nick Leeson. Was Nick Leeson ever on the cover of Forbes? I doubt, I doubt <laughs> it, because he was too much, too much of a backroom person. But they, you know, Enron were winning prizes for innovation. And I think it's a curious... Because I was thinking about Holmes, because the first time I saw Elizabeth Holmes, I'm thinking, what? <laughs> you know, there was just something so odd about the whole... And maybe there's a thing, if if... You know, if someone in the world of finance and money strikes you very slightly off the first time you hear about them, they're going to end up in prison. You know, it's a useful rule of thumb. I mean, I suppose the thing with that, which is also connected to Bankman Freed and also the you know, the big short of Michael Lewis's book about the um, financial crash, is the whole question of the underlying assets. I mean, I remember that there's a bit in the movie of the big short where you know, they all go to Florida to kind of see, well, actually, what is the underlying asset of all this money that's being repackaged and borrowed and sold around? Okay, it's houses that are being bought by people with mortgages that they'll never be able to pay. So the whole thing's going to collapse. And the Theranos thing, I mean, the idea that one tiny drop of blood and you can you know, do all this analysis of it. I mean, it's not very nice giving blood and <laughs> you sit there and they're taking more and more of it out. You think, why have you got to take so much? Because it the chemical processes of investigating the blood you need to do you need some drops for this with that and the other so the so this idea this sort of reluctance to sort of seems odd to me odd reluctance by many investors to actually think about what is the what am i actually investing in what's the underlying real world asset here and of course with with bankman freed where the underlying asset was a cryptocurrency exchange i mean that's even more evanescent than a subprime mortgage or a or a, a magic drop of blood yeah i mean it's true that 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 question about what's the fundamental underlying thing is very often neglected i mean it's a you know fundamentals investing is a subcategory of investing in speculation which is quite odd when you think about it you know what what is it they're actually doing um that's why you know um, zeke foe's book the title is very funny and it's very on point you know number go up and a lot of investing in speculation is done on that basis of, well, there's this thing, it's moving about, let's get in on it. I mean, the thing about um, Elizabeth Holmes is there were no, none of the, there are a number of, I mean, there are many, many, many um, biotech investment funds and all sorts of startups that get 
you know, capital from a variety of sources, lots of specialists working in the area, and none of them touched it with a barge pole. It was, you know, her investors were this bizarre who's who of the international super rich who were like um, Murdoch were investing. And the board was all people, you know, someone said the, the, the kind of people you'd appoint if you were deciding whether or not to invade Iraq, you know, people like George Schultz and um, whatnot, but they're not, you know, they're not biotech people. And I was talking to someone who was a, uh, talking to a biochemist so socially who said, the thing is, he explained it in sort of two sentences. The stuff you're looking for in people's blood is in parts per million. So you need quite a lot of blood. Yeah, you need a million parts you, to you, find one. You, yeah. you need, you need, you know, um, a, a proper sample because otherwise you've got these tiny fragments of of um, this and that. And in in a in a droplet, just statistically, um, it's not, you know, it's not enough. People don't take blood because they. Uh, you know, for the shits and giggles, they take it because you need the adequate sample to find what you're looking for. And say, oh, okay, I get that. It's crystal clear. It's very easy to explain. And yeah, so there is often this disconnect between what the underlying thing and what the investment thing. And with crypto, in a way, I think a lot of people who speculate in it have given up on that thing of underlying value. Michael Lewis is very brisk about it. He just doesn't go there. Um, there's this asset that is traded. And Lewis makes a distinction between, borrows a distinction uh, between the you know things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and what they call the shit coins, which are this whole mass of other crypto. I mean, there's sort of things called Putin coin. This one, it's not exactly called hoax coin or something, but it actually count it counted down over a period of time to not being worth anything and disappearing. I mean, there are you know all sorts of um, rappers, sports stars, also people have have issued cryptocurrencies dogecoin which started out as a joke and then rocketed in value when elon musk made a joke about it you know a lot, even within this world of things being i wouldn't say worthless but not clear what the underlying asset actually is there are things which admit they're not worth anything and they still have a non-zero value um so it really is pretty is pretty spectacular as, as as an example of that phenomenon goes of a thing where you know it's just not clear whether there's anything there that has any underlying value. And I suppose from the point of view of the individual trader, it doesn't really matter if there is or not. As long as you as long as you sell for more than you buy, as long as you catch it on the heading in the right direction, even if you know the whole market is eventually going to collapse because it's not based on anything, you can still get very rich. So that's called there's a whole name for that. It's called greater fool theory. Right. Um, it's the idea that all you need is someone who's who believes in it more than you you ride it for a bit you find the greater fool and sell it um and you know there are periods for which it does work um and then by and large historically speaking everyone loses all their money and by the way on that thing about the underlying asset it cuts both ways though you can you can have some of the biggest booms and busts in economic history and finance history have been about things where the underlying asset was very very clear you know, the um, ra people famously lost their shirts on the railways. There was this huge speculative bubble on the railways, lots and lots of capital pouring in. Um, but it just wa it wasn't quite clear, you know, who was going to come out on top and how long the payout was going to be. And if you have hundreds of competing enterprises, you know, they're not all going to succeed. And indeed, they didn't. And electrification was another one when lots and lots of capital went in and you know, most of it was was wasted, squandered on the wrong things. And um, South, you know, the biggest one in English history, the South Sea bubble. But again, there, you know, the notion of 
exploring, opening up new markets and a kind of prototypical version of globalization, that, that was true. That, those were real things, just as railways and electrification are. But you can still lose all your money, even if the assets are, are real. And Bankman-Fried, he's famous for being, for his crypto exchanges, his crypto exchange and his dealings with cryptocurrency. But he, as you make clear in your piece, he wasn't really a crypto bro. He was, you know, he wasn't very popular among the the people who really believe in Bitcoin as a ideology. No, he, he, they could sort of tell, you know, there is an element of, um, it is a community. It's a community that is very ideological about it. They do this quite funny thing on social media. They put in their profiles, this thing of eyes with lasers shooting out of them. It's the first time you see it, you think, that looks a bit stupid. I wonder what that's about. And then it says, it's a thing, it's a crypto expression, laser eyes to a thousand K. It means locking in all your Bitcoin and hodling, which is hold spelt wrong. This is the name of not selling your Bitcoin, just irrespective of what happens to it. You hodle with the intention of a single Bitcoin being worth $100,000. And so the laser eyes thing, you know, there is a whole world of true believers and and it has an anti-government edge and it has a sort of libertarian edge to it too. But it's, you know, it is, it's a collective belief. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of whole value system, belief system. And Bankman-Fried wasn't that person. He wasn't a true believer. He was a trader. He was someone who was very, very good. Less good than he thought, it turns out, but who was for a long time very good at you know, what's the, where's the angle? How can we make money out of this? How can we buy it for A and sell it for A plus a bit? And he'd done very well at this um, idiosyncratic trading firm called Jane Street, where he went to out of um, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he was basically looking for a thing to to make money from. And he hit on Bitcoin rather than being someone who, drank the Kool-Aid of the whole belief system and, you know, thought it was going to reinvent the whole of banking and finance and, and all of that. I think, I mean, the crypto world hates him now for obvious reasons because they hate these scandals and disasters because it's very damaging to the whole to the whole enterprise. It looks bad. But there is this other subtler thing that he's also, you know, he wasn't really one of the, um, he wasn't really a true believer. But, I mean, he drank a different form of Kool-Aid, didn't he, in the form of effective altruism? I think there's two ways of telling the story. I think you can see it as he's a professional criminal who latched onto a way of making money by stealing it from a, you know, by stealing it from an enterprise he created. He latched onto a way of making money and he latched onto an excuse, which was that he was going to give it all away. That's sort of the, what the prosecution said at his trial, but it's the sort of thing that prosecutions do say. <laughs> Um, and then the other way of looking at it, which is mine, the way I see it, was that he was something of a lost soul, didn't quite know what to believe or who he was, and latched onto this movement called effective altruism, which has so started by Oxford philosophers in 2009, two Oxford philosophers. And the idea is that we should think about what we're doing with our lives in order to give as much away as we can to... Uh, in the first instance, save people who, lives that would not otherwise be saved. It also start, came from um, 
an essay by Peter Singer about our oblig the philosopher, Australian philosopher Peter Singer about our obligations to people who have needs who aren't immediately around us. And he has this famous thought experiment about a child drowning in a pond. And you know, if you just bought a new pair of shoes and there's a child drowning in the pond, do you trash your shiny new shoes to save the life of the child, or do you put the you know the hundred quid you spent on your child is more important? The hundred quid you spent on your shoes is more important than the child's life. Well, no one thinks that the, your shoes are more important than the child's life. And then he says, well, actually, people in the in poorer countries are dying because of these for the lack of these tiny amounts of money which you could give away. And it's your ethical, moral responsibility to give away that money to save that life. And effective altruism EA basically comes out of that thought experiment that actually if you take it seriously what do you do with your life what do you do with your money um, and one of the one of its um, ideas is the thing that Bankman Fried latched onto was that you make as much money as you can and you give it with the intention of giving it all away and then if you go and train as a doctor go off and work somewhere where they need medical help but the difference the difference you make to the world is what you do with your medical training and what the other doctor who would have had that training does in your place that's the net difference because you're not as it were a new doctor you know the the medical schools are full already there isn't an, a surplus supply of doctors you can't plus one you can just make the difference between the one you are and the one that the other person would have been and the idea is that the net difference is much greater if you simply get if you make a ton of money doing something probably in finance that's where the money is um make a ton of money and give it all away then you're making a much bigger difference to the world because you know the other the other person would have been some banker who'd have just spent it on you know yachts and cars and watches and you know nannies and private schools and all the stuff that they spend money on and that that contribution can save an enormous number of lives and so he he one of the reasons that, I mean, there are multiple reasons why I believe Bankman Fried's version of it as opposed to the darker, more cynical version of it. And one of them is that his account, it was like a, it was a sort of conversion experience. He got it immediately. He didn't really need to be talked into it. As soon as he heard the idea, he said, yeah, that's it, I'm in. It made logical sense to him in a way that's very important for his kind of mind. And that was the, that was his ostensible you'd say if you don't believe in raison d'etre or actually what got him started down this particular track of just making as much money as possible as quickly as possible but he had already been working at the hedge fund hadn't he? no he just started an internship um he was 20 and he, he was at mit and he got an email out of the blue from one of the founders of ea william mccaskill and was approached to apply for an internship at Jane Street at about the same time. And I, I think presumably it, se it almost seemed like a kind of package deal. Here's the thing you can do and here's the reason for doing it. Because the other thing was that the particular kind of trading they do at Jane Street, I mean, there's lots of different ways in which hedge funds work, but the particular kind of trading they did at Jane Street was games, they train, when you go for an interview, apparently, they, it's just playing games. The partners come in, and the, f the first thing I think was a hand of poker. And then he sudden, the partner starts interrupting and saying, what would you pay to see the next card? Yeah, would you pay 50? And they give them 100 coins or chips at the start of the day. And it's basically clear that the person with the most chips at the end of the day is going to have a job. And the person who loses all their chips is, is going to be fired. And the other thing is that because they, they conserve their own time as much as possible. So as soon as one of the partners decides you're not up to it, you're gone. It's not like the interview process takes a day. The interview process takes until they fire you. And it's a very vivid p 
piece in Michael Lewis's book, he just describes this day with these bets about, you know, um, you know, what would be the value of knowing X and Y. And then one of them was, someone comes in the room and says, um, what are the odds that I'm related to a baseball player? And Beckman-Fried does the maths in his head. And he, and he says, the first question he asks is a good one, which was, you know, well, define baseball player, because there's the major league, minor league, things like that. So the guy then says what he means, which I think is professional, professional adult baseball player. And then his follow-up question is, what do you mean related? And I think it's established that it's like first cousin level of life. So he does the maths and works out that the real probability is about one in a thousand. And then thinks about it a bit more. Thinks, yeah, but there must be a reason he's asking that question. That's such an odd question that it actually changes the maths of it that he's asking it because he's got something on his mind because he, he can ask literally anything he wants. So it must be, it must, that must nudge the calculus and changes it to one in 50. And sure enough, the guy is related to a baseball where he's got some cousin. He played. Um, but the thing that Lewis says, the thing that Bankman Fried is very good at is that kind of thing of not just what's the game, but what's, why have the rules of this game been set up the way they are? He's very good at jumping to, there's the analysis of the probability, which he's good at, like lots of people who have an instinctive aptitude for maths. But he also has this other thing about the kind of level of metacognition, about why is this question being asked? What's the, why is it framed the way it's framed? And what's the intention of the thing behind it? Um, and he just had this, you know, he was just freakishly good at that. And as Lewis says, yeah, by the... By the end of his, that day, the day interview, it was clear that he was just much better at that than at anything else he'd ever done. I mean, he was very good at maths, but he went to math camp, that thing they have in America. And there were sort of kids who were, they're all weirdly good by definition. And there were kids there who were better than him. And he had, you know, he'd done a, a very variety of sort of high IQ, clever kid things. And there were also other high IQ, clever kids who were better. But this particular thing of, trading and betting under conditions of fluctuating probability and dealing with quite a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things you just can't know for sure. That's the thing that he had the freak talent for. And he found that and found EA at the same time. And I think it was that one, two thing together was the sort of decisive turn. And so he was at Jane Street for a while. And then he left and he set up his own firm that was called Alameda. Yeah, he did three years at Jane Street. It didn't take a single day off, apparently partly because days when, even days when the markets are closed in America, because one of the things that he saw happen was that when American markets are closed, you get weird fluctuations in markets abroad that are linked to America. So those were good trading days. And it didn't exactly burn out, but I think he had an is this it feeling. And he was making, a, um, I actually tried to find a concrete number for this, uh, and I wasn't able to, but variety of people say he was giving away most of his money. So I think over half his income he was giving away to, to EA specifically. Ha takes a break and goes around looking for something to do, really consistent with the EA, you know, line. And the something to do. The answer to that arrives in the form of Bitcoin. It's the it's the new new thing. Twenty seventeen, which is when this was, was when Bitcoin really started blowing up on markets and the, one of the things that a trader like him looks for you don't need you don't need number go up you just need a volatile asset 
if you because traders make money when things go down too make money just as easily it's activity is the thing um and also so volatility is good um movement is good more money coming in in and of itself is good and inefficiency is good a market where it's where there's lots of where there's big spreads between the price at which you buy the price at which you sell um a thing in bitcoin at that point was that different exchanges most bitcoin are held in exchanges it's not like money in your pocket it's a, it's in a casino somewhere and that's where most of the bit, most of the crypto in the world sits in one of these different casinos um and they sometimes be different prices in the different casinos so you'd be able to buy a bitcoin for one price here and sell it for one price there there's a thing called the kimchi premium which was their first really successful trade which was because bitcoin were a company with a more expensive or less i think they're more expensive in korea because of the difficulty of um because it was illegal to buy them i think it was illegal to buy them through a korean bank so it was harder so the price was up so if you could buy bitcoin somewhere else and sell them in korea you could instantly make money and that was actually their first successful trade he sets up he sees he sees all this sees it very clearly and sets up this company called alameda research basically to exploit these the volatility the inefficiency and also crucially the emotion anything people feel very strongly about you get inefficiencies and the opportunity to make money the odd thing about that is the last piece i wrote in the paper last time i was on the podcast was about statistics and um there are two former professional gamblers who own premiership teams now um brighton and uh i've forgotten the other one hang on I've gone blank but it's not brentford or something like that is it? yeah it's it is brentford yeah. brentford and brighton in the premiership and the the people and they're two former professional gamblers who got into betting and football and again the thing that makes the football market inefficient is emotion people feel so strongly and they get so excited and they're so volatile that they can't see straight and so um it was something those those are the things that made bitcoin seem tempting as uh an area for this hedge fund he set up alameda research but then well, one thing that changed that you say in the piece that you know the hedge fund if a hedge fund's doing things right you've never heard of it so jane street no one's ever heard of but he but with alameda he he needed to get investors so he then had to go on a was this was this for the exchange at some point he needed to go on a published yeah it was at a later stage so alameda um bumbles along for a bit um is making money but not making enough money for bankman fried's purposes but alameda had investors from within the ea community and um and the the thing michael lewis points out is they're very they're hilariously unchill about what happens to the money you'd have thought well they're going to give it all away anyway so in a sense if, if everyone's going to give it away it doesn't matter who has the money because it's all going to end up where the causes um it doesn't work like that the the investors charge 50% interest which is a, worth thinking about anyone who complaining about their mortgage um and the people who work there fought with, over money all the time and so it's not making enough and to give away and by this point he's seen Bankman Fried that the real money is in owning an exchange uh, the one of the casinos i mentioned earlier that's where the proper money is because you can you can make money every time anything happens it goes up goes down people move their money in people move their money out doesn't you know people buy crypto a swap it to crypto b all of that doesn't matter you make money from every transaction but the thing about exchanges i think about it's a little bit like whenever you see an ad for something really lively in in britain it's all those ads for 
comparative things that you know they have meerkats or opera singers or things like that they're for their price comparison markets for insurance whenever an ad makes a huge point about how wacky and exciting it is it's because the underlying thing is always the same it's like lager ads always used to have jokes and commercials and things like the Hofmeister bear or running gags or things like that. It's because it all tastes the same. Yeah. So you could say Carlsberg's probably the best lager in the world because it's not any different yeah. from any of the others. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Hofmeister has a comedy bear that does his walk. You know, who cares? It's, it's Eurofizz. It's identical. Yeah. And something I was thinking about that, about crypto exchange. So the thing you need, it's an exchange where you can store your crypto. You need a way of getting it known. And in a way, Bankman Fried's persona became that. That whole thing about the thing we started off by talking about him sitting on stage at that conference, dressed like a Grateful Dead roadie next to Blair and Clinton. That's part of the branding. That's part of how FTX got known. And they had a look at him and decided we could get, actually let's not give this guy media training. He's perfect the way he is. Because to, you know, the, an exchange is worth. It's customers. That's the business, having as many customers as possible. And so that's where you get the transaction from a kind of Jane Street model, which Alameda was, where if anyone's heard of you, you're doing something wrong, to ticking the maximum publicity box, as it used to be called in the day of the British pools, and creating this, you know, the SBF persona who's on the front page of all the financial papers and has that Forbes profile written about him, which uh, about how he's the richest person under 30 in the world, the fastest person to that level of wealth since Mark Zuckerberg, and possibly, in, it turns out, richer than Zuckerberg, because quite a lot of what Bankman Fried owned are these weird coins that are very difficult to value. And so the transition from Alameda Research, the hedge fund, to uh, FTX, the exchange, is a point where he goes from being someone that no one's ever heard of to being, in a way, kind of one of the main front men for not just Bitcoin, but all of crypto. And then it all went very quickly, very quickly wrong. I mean, you say in the piece, January 2022, based in the Bahamas, FTX is worth 32 billion. And 11th November, same year, 10 months later, it's gone bankrupt. Yeah, and you have two things. You have a downturn. There's a, a collective downturn in crypto in spring. One of the, one of the crypto coins, Luna and Terra pair, paired coins blew up. And then there's a general downturn. Lots of assets aren't worth what people thought they were worth. And you know, to, to quote, there's no Warren Buffett thing. It's when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. And so there's a sort of general anxiety. And then the person you would have said is Bankman Fried's nemesis before the U.S. prosecutors got on him. There's uh, Chang Ten Zhao, who runs this company, the world's biggest crypto exchange called Binance, who was an early investor in FTX and then became a kind of sworn enemy. They fell out. And he expresses scepticism about the value. I should try to remember the sequence. I think the first thing that happened was someone leaked a balance sheet of Alameda's assets to um, a Coinbase, which is a sort of um, like an online crypto forum discussion forum and newsletter and it looks as if there's a hole in what it's worth and that a lot of alameda's a lot of alameda's assets are a coin that ftx uses on its own exchange so you have this circular thing that alameda which is the privately owned hedge fund owned by bankman fried 90 percent by bankman fried is uh, in this 
overly close relationship with FTX, which is the public, uh, which is a company that there are other investors in, not public, but there are lots of investors in FTX. But then Alameda's main asset is this currency which is propping up FTX. So the question then is, well, hang on a minute, if Alameda also then lending money to FTX, to keep it in bits, is maybe there's no underlying thing there. Maybe the thing that's propping it all up isn't isn't worth what it's supposed to be worth and there's a hole where the assets are supposed to be. So that starts, this piece comes out in November and there immediately starts to be a run. People's customers, you know, it's like a bank run. It's like Northern Rock at the start of the credit crunch. If people aren't, you know, and people start withdrawing their money from the casino. So I want my money back right now. And then what happened was that the only person Bankman Freed could turn to, or the first person he could turn to, to help bail out FTX was was Zhao, Binance, who set, announces first that he's looking at it to bail out FTX, and then says that he won't. They've done their due diligence and they decided they won't. And that all this is in in a single week in November 2022, and that is what turns the exit into a stampede, saying. Oh, I have. A, I'm going to save you. Oh, I've had a look. No, I'm not going to save you. Five billion dollars of customers' assets are withdrawn in a few days. I mean, they're losing one point hundreds of million dollars an hour in assets. And he signed that he has no. Well, he, I think, subsequently would say he had a choice, but at the time, yeah, has no choice. Signs bankruptcy papers, and the whole enterprise's enterprise collapses at just you know record speed from, as you say, 30-odd billion in January. And then it would have been worth not far off that at the, in the autumn. And then, you know, basically within a week in November, the whole thing implodes. And where does the fraud come into that? Because in that, wasn't it that some of the people, they were wanting to withdraw their money and it turned out that it wasn't there to be withdrawn, not only because it had been lost, but he'd been siphoning it off to Alameda. Yeah, Alameda. and so the whole court case was about this failed separation really between Alameda which is the hedge fund that he owns and FTX which is the exchange that lots of people own he he's a majority owner but there are lots of people inv invested in it and also lots and lots and lots of customers money on it and they're meant to be separate and they're not that's what it comes down to that Alameda is supposed to be just another customer on the FTX exchange you know putting putting its trades through FTX but apart from that you know, doesn't own it. And it turned out that what he had done was give Alameda permission to borrow money from FTX. And that money in FTX is customer's money. It's like employees of your bank going off and speculating with your current account without your asking um, on a huge scale that Alameda had. Uh, it, we learned from the trial, you know, I think it was $64 billion of drawing rights from assets on FTX, which is essentially a bottomless piggy bank of customers' money that it was playing with. And uh, it, it had lost it. It had just lost the money. And not just, I mean, not just lost it in the kind of, I mean, you mentioned Nick Leeson earlier who destroyed Bearings, Bearings Bank. Um, Nick Leeson lost money in the sense of making specific trades that went wrong. He actually bet on the yen going up. And there was a, and, and the, um, Japanese stock exchange, the Nikkei, and Japanese stock exchange is still below the price he was gambling on in the late 1980s. 
So you you know in that instance you you know where how the money was lost. In the case of Alameda and FTX, it's lost in the other sense. They actually don't know where the money is. Uh, I think the final figure was eight point six billion of just missing assets, and um, that's that's the fraud. And the response to it, I mean, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude, I guess, in the sense that I mean, as you you put in the in the piece that the modern world features a category of entitled, arrogant, oblivious billionaires who seem to float above us and see the common mass of humanity down below as a not especially interesting kind of ant. In SBF, we've finally got our hands on one of this class. And presumably most of the investors who lost their money belong to that class as well. So in a sense, I mean, has, you know, are there ordinary people who've, who've lost everything on this? Or is it just a whole, a whole bunch of incredibly rich people gave their money to some other incredibly rich person who lost it and he's going to jail then? No, well, it's a, it's a funny one because the main category of people who lost money on it were people who worked there. You know, a lot of the main investors in FTX were people who worked at Alameda and FTX. And then you have a lot of people who did lose everything, who um, were not necessarily rich people who speculate on crypto. You know, there's a lot of, that's a common thing, people without many traditional assets who's, who effectively gamble on crypto because of having, you know, often having heard get-rich-quick stories or stories about, you know, money magically seeming to grow out of nowhere. One of the oddities about the trial, if you had a sort of representative victim of the collapse, it would probably be, you know, someone who's invested their whole life savings who lives in the Philippines, who has some regular job and whose dream was to, you know, earn enough money to pay a ha- pay for a house trading crypto. I mean, there's a l- really a lot of it in, you know, we get the, it gets the ten- we hear about it in the rich world, about other people trading it, but there's a lot of it in the developing and emerging world. People in countries who don't trust banks and people who've heard get rich quick, quick stories and people in countries where you know your assets can be appropriated from you by the government fairly easily there's a lot of crypto speculation from people like that and one of the odd features of the trial was that the prosecution always turns up a a representative victim and the representative victim in this case was a, a french cocoa trader who lives a professional cocoa trader who lives in london and i thought was it you know that it doesn't feature as a topic in the trial because it's outside the frame of it, but it was quite an odd moment that for that question of who is it who's lost out and the subsidiary question, which of course doesn't come up at the trial, is why is it an American... Why is this in the US court system? Because uh, Americans are banned by law from trading on FTX because it's, uh, it's a kind of exchange that the, isn't permitted in America. You can buy and sell Bitcoin is treated as a commodity but these were kind of fu- these are a form of gambling on futures which is explicitly forbidden to u.s citizens there was an american subsidiary that could trade called ftx us out of one of i think it's something like 120 subsidiary companies that ftx and alameda had so one of them was that uh, americans were allowed to use but the, all the others they weren't and so that's an oddity to it you know, the, the representative victim, if you leave out, as you probably should, if you leave out the people who actually work there, were these, you know, some dude in Indonesia who, you know, wants to make enough money to buy a flat. And that person didn't really feature in any of the discourse around the trial. 
I mean, is that a question answerable? Why was the why was the trial in New York? Why was it in the US? I think I think you know, the the American federal prosecutors are the only people who go after you, whoever you are, wherever in the world you are. The SEC is is uh, is ruthless and determined, and comes up surprisingly often in in the um, if you're interested in you know modern world of finance and all of that stuff. The modern commodities trading industry, which is the stuff that trades everything, you know, copper, coffee, oil, you name it. There's a company, the the biggest trader in the world is a company called Glencore, which is based in London, incorporated in London. Well, it's based in Switzerland, but it's on the London Stock Exchange. And that was, Glencore was founded by a man called Mark Rich, who spent, I think, the last 25 years of his life on the FBI Most Wanted list because the SEC were after him. You know, and there are other stories like that. Uh, of I can't remember. The, I was reading another one the other day. It said in passing, you know, he can't, oh, when I was writing about um, fraud at Volkswagen, the diesel emission scandal, the only person there who ended up doing jail time was an executive who'd, cha- you know, changed, caught a flight, tried to catch a flight back from Florida. You know, and again, the, the American, the American regulators are the ones who will just chase everyone to the end of the earth. And I think in this case, they're trying to create a kind of third rail. You touch it and you die around the US banking system and crypto. They regard crypto as just a cesspit of money laundering and crime and whose main, whose main utility, whose main use, if you separate it from the question of it being an interesting thing technologically and turn up to what it's actually used for, they would say the main thing it's Bank used drugs. for is, yeah, is, is crime, laundering drug money and paying paying criminals and they don't want it anywhere near the u.s banking system and the thing is that p- pretty much everything at some point touches the u.s ba- u.s banking system if you because it goes through u.s dollars and i think it's that i think it's a thing kind of you know um to borrow the south park thing you know team america world police is the is that's how the sec sees its role in about around crypto and, and the u.s dollar they're very keen to make it crystal clear that they don't regard it as a legitimate asset so he was extradited to the us by the by the world police as it were i mean how did they get him i mean the key witnesses were his accomplices who who did deals right yeah the you know his right hand men and women they were the main witnesses and i think you know the, there's a there's a subtext to the trial which is i mean the prosecutors laid it out with you know devastating clarity because the main witnesses were the other were the co-conspirators who who admitted they'd done it you know gary wang who's his right hand man caroline ellison who's on our f- girlfriend who was uh, ran alameda for a bit and nishad singh who's a very close friend and associate all the way through and you know they described in detail what had happened what he'd done and how he'd you know been in charge of the whole enterprise it was, it was pretty unambiguous um but the subtext was around the defense because you know there's a th- was what the defense says and there's what they mean and those are two slightly different things and the defense you never put your defendant on the stand if you can help it because you're just, the prosecution has to be, as he stands in the dock he's innocent all the defense has to do is shoot holes in the prosecution's case doesn't have to say what happened just to say well that's not beyond reasonable doubt therefore he's innocent so if you stick your guy in the in the witness stand that's a sign that you know it's not going swimmingly so they bankman freed goes goes on stand and that's, I think, where there's a subtext, which is, yes, it happened, 
But this guy is so chaotic and so all over the place and so shattered with sort of ADHD and inability to keep track of things and so, you know, this combination of certain about the th things he's certain about but actually chaotic and flaky at the same time that the things that the prosecutors are describing happened but actually this guy did not have criminal intent you know that because that's effect effectively def the defense case was that he was so useless that he didn't have criminal intent he just lost the money as he said he wanted to testify to congress he said you know i want to state on the record i fucked up that was the sentence he was planning to say until his mother told him he couldn't and that was basically that was basically his defense i fucked up and so I think the idea was that you put that person on the stand and say, oh, yeah, I can believe that guy fucked up. So it's complicated, you know, so actually for him to have a disaster in the witness box isn't necessarily a disaster for the defence case because they're trying to make him look like someone who's chaotic and useless and capable of losing $30 billion. But the problem for that was that Danielle Sassoon, the prosecutor, did this absolutely lethal job on him in the defence box. So he he didn't look just flaky and chaotic and useless, all of which actually was fine for the defence. He just repeatedly looked like he was lying. And she'd lined up time and time again, would ask him specific things. Did you take a private jet to go to the Super Bowl? Because they sponsored the Super Bowl one year. Had this now infamous ad with Larry David, you know, advertising FTX. Pretending, it's quite funny if you look it up on YouTube, pretending to be the person who missed out on various things in the past. Did you take a private jet to the Super Bowl? Because that was part of the prosecution case. They were just spaffing all this money away, left, right and centre, and all sorts of idiotic things, which, by the way, is true. They were. He did. Did you take a private jet? I can't recall. Brings up a photo of Bankman Freed on the private jet on the way to the Super Bowl. Oh, oh yeah, OK. And, um, and then the other one's like, um, did, you ever, did you ever say that you had no involvement in any of the investment decisions made by Alameda. No, I never said that. Cut to, you know, plays the tape, him saying in an interview, I had no involvement in the investment side of Alameda. You know, over and over and over again, plus a hundred, more than 140 examples of him saying, I don't remember. And it was just, it was, it was a massacre. It, you know, they'd incredibly carefully and thoroughly prepared for exactly this thing of, I, I didn't have intent, I'm just an idiot. And just put him through the mincer. And there was just nothing left. And that, you were asking earlier, you know, was I surprised? No. I mean, I, I thought they had, um, you know, what in boxing they called a puncher's chance going into that thing in the witness box. It was perceived as a high-risk thing to do. But actually, as I say, I, th I can understand what they're trying to do there. Just make him look like a total... The weird thing is, if he looks like a total idiot, it helps. I thought that's what they were doing. But... Um, Danielle Sassoon, the prosecutor, just, you know, they saw that one coming and it was, um, it turned into a trap that they walked into because, you know, the, whatever you could say about that, that guy who couldn't recall 140 separate instances of things that had happened, you know, last year, um, the thing he did not look was, was free of intent. Yeah. I mean, and that high, the high risk, high reward tactic or strategy, what, I mean, that was his pattern wasn't it so he went into the witness box the same way he went into investment opportunities and i think possibly you know i think i say in the piece and we will never know because you never actually really get with these frauds you never get a completely candid internal account of what they thought they were doing um 
But I, I suspect it was, you know, he would have thought there was, go, doing the things with Alameda and FTX, he would have known that on, he might get caught. And he would, because he was absolutely that person, he put numbers on anything, he would have put a probability on it. And I think, you know, 20% chance I get caught. If I don't get caught, I've got a 20, 30% chance of becoming the world's first trillionaire which is something that had been said about him in print more than once. He's going to be the world's first trillionaire. And I'm going to give all that money away, and that will save hundreds of millions, maybe billions of lives. And on that calculation, he would have felt morally, he would have sort of talked himself into this or thought himself into this weird corner where I'm, I'm ethically obliged to do the crime, to you know, to save all humanity. And I suspect there's some bizarre crystal clear but bizarre logic along those lines was was what ended him up there in the dock and now in jail not having saved the world yeah and there's one one final thing there's an interesting debate going on about sentences because if he'd gone down in a british court system maximum sentence for fraud is 10 years and the average sentence is about two two to four and there's an argument about whether that's enough tom windsor the um HM Inspector of Prisons was saying, you know, fraud isn't taken seriously enough by the system, including in nobody ever gets caught, especially for online fraud. And um, when they do get caught, their jail terms aren't long enough because fraud can absolutely ruin people's lives. And on the other hand, you have the line that uh, Jesse Eisinger, who's a very good American journalist, who's written a book about financial crime and and the failure to prosecute it. He was saying, I saw on Twitter, saying that the the kind of sentence he's likely to get, you know, this 110-year maximum, and everyone thinks it'll be decades, probably. But that's too long. That sort of people should go, to, you know, five to seven years in jail is enough. And the problem is that not enough people are caught. You could catch more people and give them shorter sentences. That's icing his And, you know, it's definitely worth taking seriously because he wrote the book about it. But I think what where we are at the moment in America is that they have these astonishing sentences, effectively life sentences, and what that does is it bullies people into cooperating. So if if it, if Bankman-Fried had been facing a British-style sentence, probably or possibly the other people wouldn't have rolled on him. If they think they're going to do five years in jail, they all keep their mouth shut, do the time, and no one's prosecuted successfully because they, have, they, they don't have any evidence. Um, and so there's this interesting thing where you have these, I think, you know, you can definitely make a case for... British sentences being too weak and American sentences being too draconian. But the thing about the American sentences is that they're a means to an end. They're the way that they get this thing of an over, 99, 90, over 99.5% conviction rate in the US federal system. And that's because it's so many people cooperate because they're terrified of just of effectively these life sentences. But that does that in effect mean that so, someone gets scapegoated? So you have this large-scale fraud perpetrated by a large group of people, and the last one to fess up and you know to to flip or whatever the the word is is the one that, who ends up going that to can taking happen. that. Can definitely happen. It's a classic. Um, it's the foundation of game theory, actually. This experiment called the prisoner's dilemma, which is basically about the last person to flip and cooperate i think they clearly the feds take a view and the the view the feds took in this case was that he was the mastermind and actually you know if you read michael lewis's book it's very sympathetic to or empathetic 
with Bankman Fried and what he did, and not in the criminal sense, but just the kind of person he was and how he ended up where he ended up. And I think even from that, you conclude it, you know, it was his enterprise. He he was the mastermind. I mean, there's a separate issue about whether anyone else would go to jail, but, I, you know, it's definitely the case that he's the main, he's the principal. And, and without him, this wouldn't have happened. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what sentences, because they, they pleaded, they didn't just cooperate, they pleaded guilty. Caroline Ellison, Gary Wang and Nishat Singh, you know, then they're facing sentences, facing sentencing quite soon. And he, odd, the thing that struck me as odd, he's not facing sentencing until 28th of March. Um, that must be some quirk of the US system. So it's a while before we, while before he knows what, he and we know what's going to happen to him. John Lanchester, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this week we're starting a series of short conversations with some of our writers about their favourite pieces by other writers in the LRB archive. Today, it's Rosemary Hill talking about one of her favourite pieces, but I started by asking her if she remembered when she first came across the LRB. Oh, vividly, yes. I left university at a time that coincided exactly with the Times lockout, which was when... Murdoch revolutionised the printing process. The Times workers were all locked out. The TLS didn't appear. And in the void, various little new magazines cropped up, one of which was called Quarto, edited by Craig Rain. And I worked for him with a magazine called Vol, which was a pioneering ecological magazine. And we both operated semi-legally out of a basement in Regent's Park. And I was very aware that... Although there was, you know, Quarto, we did our best. But Craig was always very definite that the London Review of Books was better. So I was always brought up to believe that the London Review of Books, he talked a lot about Carl Miller, and, and he also was a good editor for me, having been rather nicely looked after as a student and encouraged. I, I would write things and he'd say, no, it's no good, it's just boring. Um, so he was educating me about how to write. And he was also educating me to think that whatever happened at the London Review of Books was the standard. That was the mark you had to hit. So I was an avid reader, of course, and um, eventually, thrillingly, a contributor. And was there any piece that you remember reading from the early days as a reader that really, or even later days as a reader, that really stands out? Yes, a piece from the archive that I really loved, which appeared in December 1981 under the headline Jerusalem. It's Penelope Fitzgerald's review of Stevie Smith's Me Again, the uncollected writings of Stevie Smith. Um, Two of my favourite writers in one piece. And I think that Penelope Fitzgerald's genius as a reviewer, she's always quite concise. Every sentence is telling. I've always found Stevie Smith quite a difficult writer. I love her, but I don't... She's like Emily Dickinson or William Blake, with whom Penelope Fitzgerald immediately compares her, as somebody who's... It's so limpid what they're doing. You sometimes think, are they doing anything? And Penelope Fitzgerald, who was herself quite a difficult writer to get to know, but she opens up Stevie very beautifully, quotes her as saying that she was straightforward but not simple. And she has this wonderful phrase... She presented to the world the face which is invented when reticence goes over to the attack and becomes mystification. And I just read that and I thought, oh, now 
I understand completely. And at the same time as she's doing this and mixing her own knowledge of Stevie Smith as a person in private life too with her discussion of the work and say she compares her to Blake and to Emily Dickinson. And then she has this wonderful phrase that Stevie, after her lion aunt died, Stevie learned to cook and quite enjoyed it. And Penelope Fitzgerald says, she loved to feel a young parsnip under her knife. And you think, ooh, fancy thinking of writing that. And then she ends with the idea of the way in which Stevie Smith, like Emily Dickinson, like Blake, makes of this very ordinary, immediate material environment a kind of Jerusalem. You can read Penelope Fitzgerald's piece on Stevie Smith, as well as all of Rosemary Hill's own pieces, and John Lanchester's, including his latest on Sam Bankman-Fried, and everything or anything else in our archive, by subscribing to the LRB. There's a link for that in the podcast description. This episode was produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.